I knew I was ambitious. I knew I wasn't lazy and a failure, but I couldn't articulate it. What I was doing was creating a lot of possibilities of being successful and working on my flaws. But then as far as being objective, I thought, I've never really sat down and said, what do I need financially? What do I need for my income? To have something concrete and then work on it. How am I going to do that? Instead of it just being a pie in the sky, okay, throw it on the wall, see if it sticks. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Having more than doubled her income and moving her company's market position from number 57 to number one, Kim Corbett is an account executive who considers herself a turnaround agent turning around the sales of failing or emerging companies. She's a top performer with a proven track record for growing revenues and increasing an organization's profitability. Always ambitious, she's previously struggled to get beyond her current income range until she studied with Influence Ecology. And in this interview, you'll learn exactly what changed. In today's Guru Talk, we'll hear a segment of a recent Fundamentals of Transaction Program Classroom webinar. Here, Vice President Drew Knowles and I discuss the subject of autonomy. Traditionally thought of as a condition of independence, we reorient our students to think of autonomy as a surplus of help. Here's the interview. This is quite an honor, so thank you for inviting me. Well, you are welcome. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. And what we'll do is just start with having you introduce yourself. All right. My name is Kim Corbett, and I was born in Milwaukee County, Wisconsin. I am one of four children. My, and I was the first girl in the family. My entire family still all reside in Wisconsin, except for myself and my son. I live in Illinois, central Illinois. I currently work in the healthcare industry, diagnostic imaging to be exact. I'm an account executive. People have called me a turnaround agent. I would call myself an expert in turning around failing or challenging markets. It's become a hobby of mine. It's, I actually enjoy it. <laughs> it's a, a, quite a challenge. And I've done it several times now for different companies. A diagnostic imaging center in one of the Chicago suburbs. I took it from the top revenue producing modality, they call it, and took that from number 57 in the country to number one in a very short period of time. A lot of it was using the 
tools that I learned with my study with influence ecology on really taking the time to study a market and look at what's because there's always the projections and the numbers that a company will provide that I'm part of. But then there's the other things as far as, okay, what are some of the other aims of the company? What are my aims financially for my income? And then, and really see what the market needs. And I really learned a lot of that with influence ecology and took the time to study and create a plan where in the past it was more of just get out there and make a bunch of sales calls and make it look good and <laughs> scurry about and stress because it gets overwhelming because you're set, you're told, especially at the beginning of the year, okay, here are your numbers. And many times it had been increased you know, quite a bit for the, the next upcoming year. Well, that's great. Kim, I'm excited to talk to you because of your role, what you do, that you're a turnaround agent, that you doubled your income here at Influence Ecology and even more than that from time to time. And I, I think it's great that we have a person who's a sales professional on the podcast with us. I think we've had some others in the past, but we haven't really focused on the whole world of selling. And, and I'd love to turn some attention to the world of selling because so many people in our programs work in sales in some regard. We all work in sales in, in some way, shape, or form. But I thought this would be a really great opportunity for us to look at what you've accomplished, some of your early journey, where, where you were first naive, um, how that turned around over time, what you learned, and, and all of that. So if you're game, I'd love to, to sort of focus on the world of professional sales. Are you up for that? Yes, absolutely. How fun. I spent many, many years smiling and dialing, right? I spent many years smiling and dialing, and there are people that avoid that like the plague. But the truth is, is we're always selling, and, and as we say, we're always transacting. In other words, we're always attempting to have other people comply with our invitations, our offers, our requests, judgments, assessments, assertions, and the like. And, and we want people to comply because if people comply with those things, well, life gets better for us. And as you know, we say, those who transact powerfully thrive. So in terms of your early days as a sales professional, in fact, you could say before Influence Ecology, what was your focus? What did you work on? You know, when you picked up the phone or when you went to a day's work, what was it like then, say, as compared to now? Probably the biggest thing was you're told to right, make X amount of sales calls per week. And it was anywhere between 40 to 60 in my industry. And before Influence Ecology, I, I seemed to, I was always stuck in a particular salary and income range. And I couldn't, I couldn't break that. And I didn't know why I thought was a flaw of mine, my personality. And I, I was perplexed by that. The structure was, okay, here's your territory. Here's what you have to do. Here are your numbers. And I would first, my biology would go into a state of panic and overwhelm. And then I would just get busy, like Pavlov's dog. I wouldn't even ask questions about it. I would just think, okay, I wouldn't do any thinking. I would go out and network with a bunch of different organizations. It looked good because I thought, in my mind, if you were working really hard and almost like a martyr, that that was admirable and stressed out. But yet my numbers weren't showing it. And so I always thought it was a mystery that, okay, 
well, if I think about it really hard, it'll just all turn out kind of thing. And I did a lot of self-acting and more of interacting than transacting. So I would work on the company goals. And sometimes I would get into that state of panic and get really pushy and forward and borderline obnoxious with customers because it was all about my numbers and my company's needs. And so that didn't work. So I wasn't building the type of relationships that I now have. And when I get into the interacting part, I was pretty positional and righteous and kind of would buck heads with management. So I looked like a bit of a rebel that I looked like I was defiant and I wouldn't follow the rules. So it just, it wasn't working. So there was a period of time I just thought, okay, I'm not, sales isn't for me. And I would give up on that. And I thought, okay, I need to do something else. It's just not in my blood. It's not working out. And so in the absence of a pathway, did you also try harder, try different approaches, try to imitate the people around you, try to act like the people around you, try to take the same actions like the people around you? Where did you go, again, before Influence Ecology, to get how you might approach this differently? I just continued to work harder. And I withdrew and I would suffer in silence. I would never admit that I was struggling and suffering, that I didn't know what to do. Got it. So I just added my hours. I added more networking events. I added more things for me to be involved with. And so then you you must have then seen a, a huge impact on other areas of your life, your, your family life, your your time to rest or recover or play or what happened there? Absolutely. Oh, yes. I, I mean, the, the stress on my health, my finances weren't going anywhere. And it just, it was a, a vicious cycle because I, I thought, okay, if I just stuck with it, if I took on more responsibility, if I looked good, if I filled those reports up, you know, surely someday somebody's going to come to me and offer me a promotion. Yep. So it was all this wishful, hopeful thinking and I was miserable, just, I was completely miserable. So then when you first began to participate here, uh, and by the way, uh, was I the person that registered you in the program? I cannot remember. Yes. Okay. So what did I say, if you remember, uh, what did I say that had you say, yeah, I should do this? I was already participating in a lot of self-improvement and development programs, and I was still not seeing results. I was still broke and I still had health issues. And then when you called me and said you were working on, there was two, two words. There was the accountability structure. And I thought, okay, I need to be surrounded by people, you know, who are working on some things and that we have an accountability structure. And then you started talking about subjective versus objective. And I thought, okay, that got my attention because I thought I need some concrete goals. I needed something to work on and I needed to figure out the gaps, like what was wrong with me. And then I knew I was ambitious. I knew I wasn't lazy and a failure, but I couldn't articulate it. That was enough to captivate me when you said that about the accountability and the subjectivity and object uh, and being objective and, and doing the work. For, for just a second with the subjective and objective, I know, I think I know what you mean there and how that may have occurred to you as something distinct or different. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means to you? 
Well, for me, and I really wasn't clear on it, and I had to really look into it and read it because I knew it was calling to me, but I thought what I was doing was creating a lot of speaking and possibilities of being successful and working on my flaws. But then as far as being objective, I thought, you know, what does that really mean? And I thought, I've never really sat down and said, what do I need financially? What do I need for my income? I mean, I knew as far as goals for weight loss and such, but actually to have something concrete and then work on it and have an accountability structure Okay. and say, okay, if I have a name for six figures or whatever it may be, how am I going to do that? Instead of it just being a pie in the sky, okay, throw it on the wall, see if it sticks. So subjectively, it sounds like you were at work on some different narrative some different affirmation, some different declaration, some sort of ontological or psychological shift, something more of the mind that you would change and then life would turn out. And what you tended to see here was that it was both subjective and objective, which includes the practical, the actionable, the statistical, the actions and so forth. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. And I didn't have the two to marry them together. And I didn't know how to do that. And I couldn't find anything like what Influence Ecology offered for me to go and go to work on that. So then you got introduced to Influence Ecology. You said yes, you started to participate. And in the Fundamentals of Transaction program, what did you begin to discover had been missing? Within that time frame, I was working for a newer position. And I never included myself in my work, in my career, in my position within a company. What do you mean by that? I'd let a a company interview me and tell me, here's the job, here's what you need to do. And then I would just do it. I wouldn't sit, after I started Influence Ecology, I sat down and did the work of how much money do I need to make? How much, what's important to me? What What's important to me as far as my quality of life? How much time do I want to spend with my family? What am I, what hours am I willing to work? And I got very precise as far as all of my priorities with my chief aims. And even how am I going to fit exercise in with my work schedule? I never did all of that. I just thought all I was going to do is go to work and just be busy and hope it turns out and I make that money that might with my target. So I included myself in my aims, but it wasn't from a selfish position because I also really sat down to understand for the company what is important to them, what was important to all the people that I worked with, what was happening with our market. I never sat down and looked at what are the aims of other people, not just the company, but the people in themselves and the the immediate relatedness and in the relationships that I formed were something that I never experienced. I was always very friendly with people, but this was immediate. Hmm. For instance, in the one company, they the team had been there and very loyal for almost 10 years, and they risked closing the center because it was doing so poorly. And I found out what was important to them was they never made the company offered collective bonus for the operations team. So I thought I made that one of my initial aims with that company, I was the first person in their history there taking that on. And 
that forms a complete alliance. So we work together as a team for both of our aims. And so they ended up, before I left, having three rounds of bonuses. And that was pretty motivating. Most of the time in companies, when there's an operations team and a sales team, there's usually friction. We were known in the nation. They would talk about us because of our the wonderful dynamics that we had and the success. And it was based on working with the people and understanding what their aims were and what motivated them. I never did anything like that before. It was quite profound. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008, and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. Let's let's turn our attention again back for just a moment to the world of, of professional sales. I understand how it was in the beginning, and I got a sense of what you confronted. But on a day-to-day basis, if I'm a sales professional and I want to do what Kim did to double my income, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would I do? And if you can talk about that in terms of fly on the wall, what what are you actually doing? What are the steps? How are you using transactional competence in those steps? And, and if you can give any examples, I just want somebody to be able to walk away and go, okay, I'm going to be able to go out and do much better heard what Kim had to say about what she does. So can you tell us about that? Sure. Fortunately, the company that I worked for had a lot of analytics and, and reporting and statistical, historical data that... I mean, I used to take advantage of it, but I really scheduled time before I ever went out to do any kind of sales calls. I understood. I did so much inventory and pre-sales planning like to a degree that I never thought of because I thought I have to have accurate thinking on, all right, I know that these particular people are our customers, but really, what does that mean? Where are we going and what did they do in the past? that worked and didn't work. And then I understood it at all levels from operations, from sales, and I scheduled time more so than ever before at the beginning. And they actually even laughed at me and said, oh, they just said, you're way too analytical. And then after they saw the success, they said, okay, we want people to do what Kim has been doing because... (laughs) Then they started calling me. I was like, I was Kim like a dog with a bone because... I could then hone in and and know exactly where I was going and I wasn't overwhelmed. And then I knew, okay, if I, for instance, if one of my aims and target for growth 
was working with attorneys on a particular project and I created an event and it was boring, tedious work to fill the seats for this event. And I knew within a certain period of time, I had to do first the accurate thinking and then the deliberate practice of, all right, by this date, I had to invite 120 people. And then I threw in some of our, the weapons of influence we use, you know, the scarcity by this deadline. And so I had to do very tedious, boring work to fulfill. And I always would meet the target of, let's say, filling that particular program because I prepared for it and I did the deliberate practice and I accepted that it wasn't going to be fun. And the other thing that was probably one of the most instrumental in my career change was with something you taught me at the very beginning, you transact for help until you are satisfied, no matter how much and how many times you have to reach out and ask for help. I was somebody and, and I was known as a small child to be very stubborn and nobody could tell me what to do. And it was embarrassing for me if anybody ever pointed something out that I did wrong. So I was never going to reveal that I needed help. Mm-hmm. I went to some of the top performers in the company and I asked them, how do you do this? There was times I probably, I called, I don't know how many people nationwide and it got the attention of the vice president of sales Hmm. because she admired that I took the time to ask instead of, I really own my territory. It was like my business, but I I think that's why I was successful because I asked for help and I didn't pretend to know something like I did in the past. And I do it now in my current role. I went to the number one. Hey, I have an aim and a goal here to be number one. And I said, right now I'm writing at about two or three. And she laughed. She said, I don't care. As long as I stay in the top three, being number one, everybody's always looking at you. She reaches out to me for help and acknowledges and compliments. (laughs) So I, I, we have so much fun. And I, I make a game of it too. That's the other thing. I used to be really serious. I mean, I still, I take my work serious, but I never thought that combining having fun and making it a game too and acknowledging people that I work with and such. Just all, there's so many little parts of it as what I do on a day to day basis. So very good. One thing I've got a question about is the personality that you identify with because I, when I reread some of the notes that you sent to me, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, she's not a performer. People are in sales roles are what we might call a performer, that personality. But you're not a performer. You identify as the personality judge, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. This is really good because I'm having several thoughts here as I'm talking to you. One is, is do you want a job? Two is, as a judge in a sales role, as an analytical person to begin with, You've described some things that make sense to me, given that you're a judge in a sales role. But anything that you want to share with us about your journey in first discovering that personality, accepting that, or glamming onto it, or resisting it, or whatever you did, how did that begin to impact your transactional competence? Oh, that that actually is giving me goosebumps as you're talking, because I had a physical, biological reaction when, at first, I thought I was a performer. And then an inventor, and I thought, no, I'll just keep studying it. And it really helped because the more I studied it about myself, the more I understood other people. But my study group through Influence Ecology, they really got to know me. And they said, you are a judge personality. And I resisted it. I hated it. 
And then at conference, I started watching different people with the judge personality, and I thought, that is me. It took a while. I had to bring out my sense of humor about it. It was hard at first. And then I started kind of embracing it, and I attended every possible focus lecture training series on it so I could understand it instead of resisting it. Then it shifted to a a bit of freedom because I've been that way since I can remember. My parents even said if something happened to them when we were, when I was little, they knew that I would run that family. And I, I didn't like that responsibility, but I thought, wow, that's, that's an honor. And I had some freedom because I didn't, I didn't have to change the parts of me that there was a lot of positive about being a judge. Before I started identifying, I could be very cold, calculating, harsh, quick to judge, reactive. My emails were sometimes, I didn't even realize I was doing it. And I would send out just, I would just get something out because I needed some facts. I needed something done and I needed it done now. And I had no room for any pleasantries whatsoever. And I was in one of the influence ecology courses at the beginning. And thankfully, the woman that I worked for, she pointed out to me, she said, you know, you want, you might want to add a little bit of relatedness in your emails. So I, in the past, I would have been, I would have been defensive. And I wouldn't have listened to that. I asked her for quite a period of time to help me. I said, I know that that is an area of weakness. So I probably for months, I would ask her to review my emails. And I still catch myself. I still ask for help with that. Because I used to think, wow, how can a judge be in sales and business development? And it's paying off now. That's great. It's really well said. I want to go back to... The, yeah, I love that you said this because I, I identified with it. You said, you know, I would show up for work in essence and you have 40 calls a week you needed to make. And that was the world, right? That was, that was life. And you would do all kinds of things to get that done. And then you went to work on yourself to get more effective, more efficient, whatever the case may be. So what does it look like now, are you still sitting down to make 40 calls in a week? Are you more effective? Do you do so much work on the front side that you just kind of go in and slam dunk five people instead of, you know, five out of 40? What are you doing now? I, first of all, when I started and I had my, my immediate director came to spend time with me in the market, I knew the person, my mentor and trainer told me that we had to do, you know, the 40 to 60 or whatever. Plus, I have just about the entire state of Illinois. So there's sometimes my weeks are a thousand miles of driving. I had my director with me. We happened to be doing a presentation at one of the physician offices. And she gave me some feedback. And I said, I've got to ask you, I am not going to ever produce any type of quality work and provide any type of service doing 40 to 60 calls. And so she made it clear it was quality versus quantity. So I got her buy-in. And then I went to a training recently, a technical clinical training. And I was, I spent quite a bit of time with one of the vice presidents and I shared that with her as well. I didn't want to be self-acting again and just be, I'm going to do it my way. I first got buy-in and understanding that they knew the amount of time that I focus on. First, I'm a patient advocate, and then second, quality and value. I got her buy-in, which was very important. So that was one thing. 
And so I'm in constant communication with people, which I've never, I haven't done like that in the past. I manage 20 hospitals in Illinois. And at the time when I first started, there was eight. I called the per- my direct report and I said, I just want you to know when you see the sales reports, I spent an entire week at one customer. Hmm. I said, and here's why. I said, the amount of volume for this particular procedure is going to just completely alter this market. You know, where we may get one particular patient per month from this doctor, he's talking two to three a day. And so I communicated in advance. So I don't even go by numbers anymore. And I look at how do I impact the community and how do we touch the lives of patients? And what do I need to bring in, whether it be a dementia clinical study? And then I work it from there. And they don't question me because I'm one of the top performers. I'm in the top three for the fourth quarter in the country. And I've only been there since March. Like I said, I communicate, I over-communicate to people in management so they know that I'm their partner. Yeah. And I, so I transact with them to let them know. So I couldn't even tell you now how many sales calls per week. Well, I think we, we got a good sense of, of how it's different now. And so I'm, I'm also curious about the trust that you've gained from people because obviously it would take something to to gain their trust and you use the word buy-in two or three different times in a different ways and since we're speaking in the jargon of transactional competence you could say they accepted your request or you presented some something and they accepted and so forth so in terms of the identity that you produced with your managers and their trust in you Now, is there anything that we should know about that journey? Yes. I, at the very beginning, even in the interview process, I've never interviewed as I'm doing now since I've learned through Influence Ecology. And so I understood their transactional personalities. And I knew that there were certain things that I wanted to develop from them that I had gaps in. And so I had a lot of respect and admiration for them going in, which I never created that with an employer before in the past. Hmm. There was almost always like a, I hate to admit this, almost like a a teenage rebellion defiant person in the back. Yeah. Like they're the employer, I'm the employee, and I I still want some power and control. That was gone. I didn't even... Because I thought recently, I thought, wow, I'm the best employee that I have ever been in my life. And so one of the examples, we have weekly team meetings, telephone conferences every week from our region. And at the beginning, I was quiet. I wasn't known. And people would kind of be quiet sometimes on the phone call. And I would always participate fully on those calls and ask for help and my director was so appreciative of that because I was participating. And then if we were studying a particular sales training, conceptual selling, and I would show enthusiasm and I would call her throughout the days when I'm driving and I would share success Hmm. and I would be so passionate. I said, I've got to tell you, I, I said, I've been selling and in business since I was 16 I thought I was done and I actually was 
a bit taken back when you said I had to do this because I, I thought I should know all these things, you know? I said, but I would share that with her and, and the trust and, and the, the relationship I built, because she said most people call her to complain. <laughs> and so I just did all these little things and I would share my, my triumphs with her and, and then acknowledge her and thank her. I would publicly acknowledge her because I knew that was important. Acknowledgement was important to her. Those are things that I never would have thought of when I was in my self-acting and interacting role in the past. So those have helped tremendously. All right. Well, very good. Well, Kim, there's one last thing here. You say, I've always said that if you're going to work, you should seek to find something that you enjoy doing. And hopefully at the same time, you can do some good for people. Who's that a quote from? That is from the link that I gave you for this this 100-year-old surgeon that still shows up for work. Hmm. And he has been in medicine for 65 years, and he's still mentoring and training. And so that's why I added that link in there for that website, because I thought, wow, I listen to people when they talk about retiring, and I thought, no. I love to be continuously learning and contributing. And my dad always, and he still says it, that find something that you love. And then this gentleman takes it a step further as far as doing something good for people. And so that's why I included that, because I thought that's what I live for. So my aim, I look at and study, how do I live to be 100 or 120? And I actually read about it, but it's not from just to live to that and suffer and just keep my lifelines. I study people who are still thriving at that age and what's possible for humans. So that's why I included that particular gentleman, because that keeps me going. That makes me set my aims for something bigger. Me too. I identify with that myself. I, I think the last thing I'd like to do is just ask you a little bit about the community of people uh, here at Influence Ecology, you say you found a community of people that you want to grow with, grow old with, deep friendships and all of that. Obviously, you're passionate about many things. Anything you'd like to say about the people of Influence Ecology or transactional competence or transactionalism? So any of those things you'd like to talk about? Yes, about the community of people. I knew when you invited me to take a look at doing this work, I knew I was ambitious. There was nothing really wrong with me. I just had some gaps to fill. Uh I didn't quite know what did, you know, influence ecology. What's ecology? And I thought, well, an ecology of people and a community of people that were ambitious. And the more I really got into it, I thought, wow, there are people who are ambitious and who are willing to help. And I have formed some friendships beyond anything that I've ever had with people around the world. Somebody gave me a lead to a person when I was working on building a business. I I have an acting CFO, business consultants. I mean, these are life-altering connections and friendships. I recently took on one of my health aims to give up eating sugar. It was really, it was something I shouldn't be eating for, for health reasons. And I was struggling with that. And I reached out to somebody in the in the ecology. And so I set up a consequence with her. And I thought, wow, these people are 
altering my life. And I, I really do mean it when I say I could grow old with them. And at first I was kind of embarrassed because like I said, I never asked for help. But now I call somebody and I'll say, you seem to have achieved this aim with your health or with your money. Can I talk with you and just understand what you're doing and and just just to have the availability because I've been in networking groups and different community groups and support circles. Nothing that takes into consideration all of the the most important things that I'm working on in my life and to just have that's invaluable to me to have because there's times when the coursework or work got really hard and I thought, okay, I'm going to stop studying. And I thought, no, if I unplug from that, it's like unplugging from my lifeline because I can see these friendships will be forever. So I hope you all continue growing and doing what you're doing. I plan on it. (laughs) I plan on it. It's really great. Good. Good. I hope so. I hope so. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so very much. And I look forward to seeing you at the conference next week. Thank you. Same here. I can't wait to see you all. As I said in today's Guru Talk, we'll hear a segment of a recent Fundamentals of Transaction Program classroom webinar. Drew Knowles and I discussed the subject of autonomy. Traditionally, people think of autonomy as a condition of independence, and we reorient our students to think of autonomy as a surplus of help. Here's the talk. Drew, one of the things that you've done such a great job in distinguishing for people here at Influence Ecology is you often talk about having a surplus. So an example might be that you have a surplus of health, health, fitness. And if you have a surplus of health, then what that means is that you're able to manage the threats to your health in ways that someone who does not have a surplus of health does. So you're able to manage the threats in in a different way. When you have a surplus of something in any condition of life, then you're not threatened in the same way that other people are. So if you have a surplus of money, you're not threatened in the same way that other people are. And so one of the ways that we'd like for you to think about a surplus of help, H-E-L-P, is as something that is available to you to produce autonomy. One of the things that I don't think that we often do is make the connection between autonomy and a surplus of help. And I just want to take a second and create that connection because many people imagine autonomy as that condition where they they can do what they want and have what they want, live as they want and so forth and so on. But no one ever says how you get there, (laughs) How, how you get to a condition where you have the freedom to act as you'd like is because you've removed all threat. And how you remove all threat is you have a surplus in every condition of life. You have a surplus of help. So when there's a breakdown around money, you're not threatened. When you have a breakdown in your career, no problem. I've got a surplus. When you have a breakdown in a relationship, no problem. I have a surplus. You have a surplus in those conditions of life. So autonomy is about having a surplus of help. So Drew, I wanted to connect those dots for just a moment. So anything you want to say to add to that? Yep, two things. It requires you to, to take some time 
to really think about and sit down and, and look, what would that what would that look like for you? Having a surplus of help, having just taking the condition of life health, for example. Who do you need? Basically, uh, I use this you use this term in America, but it's like who do you need in your Rolodex or your address book or your iPhone or whatever it might be, where if just about anything comes along that challenges your health or the health of someone that's very close to you, do you have some very, very professional and successful and specialized people that you can call upon to stave off any threat to your health or people that can actually call you on if you're not acting as you should regarding your health? And in the domain of money, like you said, John, do you have professionals and people that that are guiding you and that it's like all you need to do is follow their advice and do what they say and you're going to be well taken care of with your money. And I could go on and on. And one example I, I, I love, John, is a friend of both yours and mine and works in, in the government and some media and press came out uh, about them that was inaccurate. And before he could even try and do anything about it to, to decline or anything, the community that, that this person had produced so much value in of his help rose up and basically declined it on his behalf. That is what I would call a surplus of career, of identity. It's very right. and, great example. And I'm not saying this person, maybe now they would, because they really understand career, but I don't think they would have been diligently working on having that surplus of people in, in such a conscious way that if something came along like that, it would stave off that threat. But you can do that now that you know, and you can do it consciously. And this the last thing I think, John, was this doesn't happen haphazardly. You've got to think it out. You've got to spend some time and look. Who do you need in your ecology? In our next episode, we feature an interview with Brandon Hollenbeek. I just looked at life as it was. I had a job, I had money, and I was happy or not. And if I wasn't happy, then I complained and drank and there wasn't really any structure to it. It was just life was life. To be able to just even basically separate health, career, and money, it started to give me access to how do I change that specific thing. It took me stepping aside, actually dedicating the time to understanding that there are these different aspects of life, of setting aside and saying, okay, here's this particular slice of life. What do I want from that? If you enjoyed this episode and would like to share it with others, you can find it and share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can also find us on iTunes to subscribe We'd love to know what you think, so please take a moment and offer us a review. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guest for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. 
This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. Episode producer, editor, and music supervisor Jason Kelly. Podcast copy and show notes, editing, and links by Carol Gregory.